This is episode 488 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There's an old saying that goes, success breeds success, and this is true. But the opposite is also true. Failure follows failure. In other words, if we do the same things we have always done and failed at the same way, yet expected to be different or successful today, we're fools. And this also goes for how we do church today. The book of Acts shows us what church should be like, and yet we fail to heed its advice. Why is that? And what can we learn about church from the early church? How did the early church do church, as we call it today? What was their worship service like? What are we doing that they didn't do? And what have we added to our worship service that they never would consider adding to theirs? I mean, the answer may surprise you, but there's so much more. So come and let's learn how to leave Laodicea behind. When I begin look at scripture or ask the Lord to show me something, I always ask questions. And I ask myself these questions as I'm approaching the Bible because I want to figure out the answer to them. But I also ask the Lord these questions. Lord, I, I've, got, I've got some questions I need to ask. You promised, Jesus promised, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will take everything from Christ and reveal it to us that the Holy Spirit now lives inside of me and inside of you. So it's not like I have to go to where God is. God is with me at all times. Therefore, he understands my thoughts. He understands my emotions and my feelings. He is keenly aware of my questions. And I believe he doesn't want to keep us in the dark. I believe he wants to reveal the answers to us. So Lord, how did these people worship? I mean, I mean, how was it? I've seen the movies and the movies are still kind of contemporaryized. I, I see how we worship today, and pretty much in every church I've ever been in, it's kind of always the same. In a more formal church, you will come in, maybe you'll have like a responsive reading where the pastor will read part of a passage in the congregation, will read that part back, and okay. And you'll have some announcements that are made. Maybe you'll get a playbill so we don't want to get off track, which shows the order of worship. There'll be some music that's being played. The, the praise band will come up or the worship leader you know, waving his arm will come up. There'll be a choir or an orchestra. It doesn't really matter. Nevertheless, there's a time of singing, and, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, but by and large, in most churches I've been in, that's what it is. It's a time of singing. Not necessarily a time of worship, but a time of singing. And so there's a time of singing. Then in some churches, you have what they call special music. Special music is special, I guess. And somebody will come up and they'll sing a solo or a choir will sing a special. And when it's over, we'll clap or amen or you know whatever the proper motif is in the various persuasion of church we're at. The pastor will come up and he'll preach a message. The message will be short. The message will be long. The message will be Weaning, the message will be deep. It'll just be a message. And when the message is over, we have to get out at an exact amount of time um, so that we can do the things we need to do the rest of the day. And, and that's pretty much church. We don't have much community. If it's a large congregation, we don't have really much fellowship with other people because the guys sitting over in this wing never make it over to the people over in this wing. And forget the people in the balcony. They never come down. And so we're kind of worshiping allegedly alone. And it's, it's pretty much a service. 
And so therefore, when the coronavirus hit and everybody decided we need to move to virtual services, most people missed nothing. I, I, I just assume watching on television. Because pretty much what church is to me is listening to some music, occasionally singing, and then having a message presented to me. I could just as easily watch that in my pajamas at home on Sunday and not have to get dressed and go to church. Because church often doesn't involve an experience where God profoundly moves. And so the new wave of church now is to manufacture that experience. So what we have is a really rocking praise band. And there's some really good church bands out there, really good. And so they're just powerful. And, you know, you're in the audience and you feel all caught up like you would if you were going to a Bruce Springsteen concert or something of that nature. And then some people raise their hands like they do at a secular concert. And, and you know, it's, it's just moved by the music and you feel all jived up inside and okay all right and that's good that's the praise part nothing inherently wrong with that but is that worship does that bring you closer to the lord because worship is not something that can be manufactured by the praise band or by me or by any other person worship is something that you have to experience alone and if you don't know how to worship him truly worship him or even what that means at home we can never do it here so how did the early church worship? I mean, what was their experience like? And I don't want to call it a service, because a service is like something we go to, like a club meeting, we get it over with and we go home. But what was their experience like? We read in Acts chapter 2 that God was working some miracles out in their midst, and people were getting saved daily by the message that was being proclaimed. It wasn't a, a clergy-laity kind of distinction where the hired holy man does everything, and, and we just take in or occasionally participate. Instead, it was, it was a community. It was a body. It was koinonia. It was an assembly. It was something mystical and magical and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what did they do that we don't do today? Was there some things that just fell out of vogue? Were there some things that we just didn't want to do anymore? When the Catholic Church or the institutions to be decided to to control more of the masses, and they would speak their, their liturgy in Latin so nobody could understand what was going on. And for, for a millennium, Christians didn't even have Bibles at that time, had to accept everything that was being shared in Latin from the, uh, from the pulpit. Did that kind of bleed over into us today? So church more becomes like academic that we come to learn, and hopefully when we learn, it just doesn't stay in our head, but it drifts down into our heart. And now that we know more about God, we go out into the community and turn the world upside down for Christ. Not so much as you notice. It's more like we take in, but when we go out, it somehow doesn't bleed over into everyday life. And so are there things we've added? Are there things that we do that they would never do? Are there things that we do that makes us feel more comfortable, more kind of like an independent contractor, more walled up when it comes to church or, 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 or what? And if there are things that we added, why? And if there's things we took away from the early church, why in the world did we do that? And what do you think it would be like to worship with them? To be with a bunch of believers who haven't known Christ much at all, but have made a shared commitment, their life and their fortune to God and those people God also called into a relationship with them, 
who, you know, did under, they had no tradition other than an old Jewish tradition. And they're sitting here and they're trying to figure out what to do. And the Holy Spirit permeated their worship and the Holy Spirit moved in their worship. And I mean, how, what was that like? I mean, how, how did that even take place? Well, let me give you two main points that I've noticed as I've looked through and what their services were like versus what our services are in the West. Number one, seems in the book of Acts that everything centered around the Holy Spirit, not knowing who he is academically. Well, we'll do a teaching on the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for Holy Spirit, the Spirit is actually pneumon. It's also used in this way. Okay. I don't want to know that. What I want to know is how to know him personally, how to know him intimately. I mean, he is the part of the Godhead that's left with us. That Jesus said that it is better for the disciples that he physically removed himself from their presence and went to be with his father, seated right now at the right hand of the father. Because if he did, he would send something that was unheard of in the Old Testament. He would send him himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell us and empower us and overwhelm us and baptize us and fill us and present to us gifts that we can use and spiritual fruit that we give, and we will be energized by him. These disciples recognize that. And sometimes we have a tendency of kind of Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit. The only thing we care about the Holy Spirit is try to define who he is so we can disagree with the charismatics about that. Or we're interested in the gifts that he brings. I just want to know about the gifts. I just want to know, you know, open up the goodie bag and give me the presents. I really don't want to know him as a refining fire, as somebody who is God himself. I'm going to do a quick survey here. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Watch this. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. And then what happened? After, through, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. The book of Acts is introduced by this strange Holy Spirit. Jesus now, his words introduced in the book of Acts, verse um, 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What's the promise? The promise isn't eternal life. The promise isn't a forgiveness of sin. The promise is the Holy Spirit. And the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized, immersed, overwhelmed, buried, consumed is what the word means baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The disciples, like I would, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom to Israel now? God, you're missing the point, Steve. But it's not for you to know, verse 7, the times or seasons which the Father has put by his own authority, but you shall receive power. When? Third time, eight verses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that power will turn you in to replicas of me. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not armed camps where we all come together, protect our family and our friends and our church from the evil boogeyman out there, but we will be witnesses of light in darkness because we're spiritually empowered by this Holy Spirit. 
We find in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit actually shows up. A once-in-a-lifetime experience for these disciples here. Verse number four, or verse number one says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. I want you to know that these men were not scholars. This is, these guys were fishermen who had been with Jesus. They were tax collectors. They were carpenters. They were farmers. They were, they were common people, probably the most educated and intelligent, if we want to look at it that way, of all the disciples was Judas. And so you've got these disciples together. You've got these common people just like us, not part of the elite or the intelligentsia, just like us that are kind of together, maybe 120 of them, and they're all meeting. They don't understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the imagery in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. They have no concept, most likely, of what the Trinity was like because we struggle with the Trinity today. And so they don't have the advantage of Paul's letters or the gospel accounts. They were living it out day by day. So when we're talking about the Holy Spirit or they're talking about the Holy Spirit, it's not based on some sort of book they read or some cognitive knowledge or a degree they have. It's based on the experience that they, they're having with this God who no longer lives out there, as Stephen says, in buildings made by man's hands of stone, but instead lives in here. So they're in one place, and suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and they were and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It was an experience that they all recognized. And then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire that sat on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other dialects or other languages, and it even lists some of the ones here, as the Spirit gave them utterance. First thing the Holy Spirit did when he came upon them is he made them witnesses of Jesus and he began to control or empower part of them that they had reserved for themselves. Peter stands up and he begins to preach this sermon. He's not a scholar. He hadn't prepared this sermon. It's not like the Holy Spirit said, hey, in 10 days I'm coming at Pentecost, and so you're going to be pre presenting a message, so I need you to prepare it. So he got his lexicon out, and got his commentaries out, logged onto his logo software, and he prepared this sermon. That, that's not what happened here. He just stood up, and under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he preached this message. This me he, scriptures, Old Testament scriptures were given to him through the Holy Spirit. And we see Peter here manifesting what life is like being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 14. But Peter, standing out with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Heed my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose because they must have been just happy and giddy by the Holy Spirit empowering them, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was prophesied, spoken by the prophet Joel. When is the last time you read Joel? Uh, is that in the Old Testament? Yeah. No, isn't that right next to Jude? No, Joel. And he quotes this passage. And of all the passages and all of the, Holy, uh, all the Old Testament, that he could have chosen. The Holy Spirit directed him to a passage about himself, about the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass, verse 17, in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servant, again, I will pour out my spirit in those days. To answer your question about what's happening to us, you're thinking we're drunk. It's the Holy Spirit. And I'm prophesying, quoting from Joel chapter 2 to let you know exactly what's taking place. What do you think Peter thought that up himself? Well, you know what? Um, I don't know what's supposed to happen. I don't know what this promise is. I don't even know what the Holy Spirit is, but we're supposed to stay in Jerusalem until it happens. So when it does happen, what I'm thinking it's going to be like is this. And so when it happens this way, people are going to wonder what it is. So let me go find a passage that kind of proof text what happened to us. So I'm going to go ahead and spend two days now memorizing Joel chapter two. That's not what happened. This was a, a, a message, unction given by the Holy Spirit. And he preaches. And if you'll read this passage, and I've shared this with you before, 297 words that Peter preached outside of the verses that he quoted, 297 words. It is in your face. It is powerful. It is direct. It is anything other than the man who quaked because some maid said, I think you were with Jesus. And he ran away in fear. This guy's been changed, and he's been changed not because of the seminary he went to or the number of verses he memorized. He's been changed by something that Jesus promised would come, actually coming and changing him from the inside out. It was a filling. It was a baptism, an immersion, an overwhelming with the Holy Spirit. The same thing that you and I claim to have experienced, but with different results. He talks about Jesus, highly offensive message to them. This is just 50 days after they crucified Christ, still well in their minds. Here's what he says, verse number 32. This Jesus God raised up, of which we all are witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. That's blasphemy, according to the Jews. He's claiming Jesus is God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. What you're seeing is the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says of himself, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, therefore let all of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Golly, talk about politically incorrect message here. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the brethren, of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin and you shall receive What? Same thing we received. The guarantee, Paul talks about, of our future inheritance to come. You shall receive the Holy Spirit because this promise of the Holy Spirit is not only to you, but to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. Man, it was all about the Holy Spirit. Early church devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching, and God is acting, is adding daily to their ranks, and all of a sudden the powers to be decide we need to stamp out this church. Acts chapter 3 rolls around. Peter and John heal this man at the temple 
where everybody passed for years and years and saw him there. Nobody healed him. They healed this man by the power of God. And all of a sudden they're brought up and they're chastised and they're, they're, um, they're accused of doing this. It looks like they're going to get thrown in prison. Later on, they actually get flogged. They're brought up in front of the Supreme Court at that time, the Sanhedrin. Verse number five of Acts chapter four. And it came to pass on the next day when they brought them out of jail, that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and many of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. You've got the Supreme Court. You've got Nancy Pelosi. You've got Schumer. You've got every pot. You've got all of Hollywood. You've got these terror. You've got these people that just hate your message. And when they had set them in the midst and asked them, by what power? Dudamos, explosive, miracle-working power. And by what name have you done this and healed this man? And what would you say? I'm out of here. I'm scared. I need to hire my attorney. I don't want to talk. I, um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm frightened about what's going to happen. You're going to take away my life. You're going to take away my, my home. You're going to take away my business. All my friends are going to abandon me. The church isn't going to stand behind me. What's going to happen? I mean, Peter already quaked. When just a few people in a crowd said, you know, you were with him. I recognized by your voice. You had that Galilean dialect. I don't know him. I've never met him. And he calls down curses. Do you remember? 50 days earlier. By what power are you doing this? Then Peter, filled with self-righteousness, filled with his PhD in systematic theology, filled with years of going to church and sitting and, and listening and learning. Peter, oh, none of those things. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for the good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man stands before you whole. What happened to these guys? What happened to men of valor like this? What happened to the church that was turning the world upside down? by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where did it go? Did the Holy Spirit leave us? Does the Holy Spirit not inhabit us anymore? Does the Holy Spirit not as powerful now as he was back then? Is the Holy Spirit impotent? Is, is the Holy Spirit just weak today? Is the power of darkness too great? Or is it us? Is it the fact that we refuse to be filled by him, refuse to yield our life to him, that we're so concerned about how this is gonna affect us that we're okay with what the world does to the name of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. So they chastised them, told them you're no longer to speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Their response in verse number 19 and 20 is this, I ain't going to do it. I said, whether it is right in the sight of God, and that's, by the way, who we stand as our judge, to listen to you, or listen to God, you be the judge of that. For we cannot, it's impossible, but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. So they threatened them and they sent them back to the church. Was the church welcoming? 
Was the church excited about their bold stance? Was the church fearful of the fact they're going to take away our tax-exempt status? I mean, they may not let us meet in the building anymore. I mean, women may not be able to come on Sunday and then go out to eat Sunday evening. I mean, we may not, it may cost us something. I may lose my job because of this. I may, be, I may get doxxed. I may be part of the cancel culture. Terrible things can happen. Peter and John, can't you just take it easy and, and not bring the boot of Rome on our neck? That's not what happened at all. If you'll read this, they prayed for more boldness. Lord, that's just the beginning. We're, we're yours. We're filled with the Spirit. Lord, we, we surrender ourselves to you. Verse number 29, Acts chapter 4. Now, Lord, look on those threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. We wanted to continue even further. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaking, shaking. And they were all again filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And then verse 32, it talks about the fact that God, because of that, brought the church back together in, in unity like it was in Acts chapter 2. I, I'm going to stop here because there's much more to cover. But I suggest you begin right here and start looking at every time the word Holy Spirit is mentioned. It's shocking. I mean, everything that happens, it's in Acts chapter uh, five, Annas and Sapphira are eradicated from the church in a very dramatic way because they were involved with porn or because they, you know, embezzled money from the, no, it's because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then you move on and on and on and, and you see the Holy Spirit is powerful in their midst, incredible in their midst, because he gave gifts to everyone, which is point number two. One of the attributes of the early church is the fact that every person had spiritual gifts, not talents, but gifts. And because God equipped every person in the church with a spiritual gift, he expected the people in the church to minister for his glory to others with those spiritual gifts. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and again, I'm just going to point out just a couple of verses in these two chapters. In chapter 12, you will find that there's, there's no participants here. There's no people that just see, sit in the cheap seats and just take it all in and go home quietly. The fact is, everybody is ministering. Matter of fact, they're ministering so much, there's abuse taking place because they're elevating one gift higher than the other gifts. And we find all of this in Acts chapter 12 and 13, that there's this whole deal about tongues and well, whether it should be prophecy or tongues. And so Paul is going in trying to address a church and what he says in here that we miss all the time because we're focusing on tongues and prophecy and tongues and prophecy and all these other gifts. We miss the fact of the word all. We find it all through. When you all come together, all, everyone has this gift and that gift and they're exercising this gift. So we want to kind of kind of piece it together so there's order in our worship service because there's so many people wanting to manifest so many gifts, primarily tongues at this time, and some of the problems they were having with that, that Paul is, is bringing it all back down and, and saying, look, not everyone has every gift, but everyone has a gift. Verse 28, and God has appointed those in the church first apostles, 
Second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various tongues. Which are you? Well, I'm not any of those. Really? Not a teacher? Are all prophet apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers? Do all have the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. Everybody, and I will show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13 talks all about love. We know that. Then chapter 14, he deals back with prophecy and back with tongues. Here's the best part. After he goes through all this teaching, and we've gone through this in the past, maybe I'll hit it again. When he goes through all of this, he, he sums it up in verse number 26 of chapter 14. Well, how is it then, brethren? What is it like with you? He says, whenever you come together, he's talking about as a church, as a congregation, as an assembly, each of you has a psalm. Implied, each of you has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Now, if each of you have these gifts that you want to manifest, let's make sure that all things are done for edification. And then he begins to, to rein this in a little bit so it doesn't last forever and there's no chaos. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be at the most three uh, two or three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets and on and on. We fail to even focus on what's happening in church because we're too myopic about, well, prophecy, does prophecy exist today? Prophecy ended when the canon ended in, in uh, uh, AD 100. How about tongues? Or tongues uh, exist for today? What kind of tongues are we talking about? Talk, Acts chapter two tongues, some prophetic tongues. And what about interpretation? We, we went to some charismatic church where it was really loopy and crazy. So we don't want to do that anymore. So we don't speak tongues anymore. We get into big cessationist argument and we miss we miss the fact that in this church, when they came together, everyone had something to offer, which is why I was so honored last week when Nick stood up and said, hey, I just want to share something. Okay. And so Nick shares something God had shown him. How often does that happen in church? Hardly ever. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So we have a program, and in the program, it lists everything that's going on. We just had our offertory. And then we're getting ready to have our organ music and then our special. And then Nick stands up between the offertory and the special. And he ain't on the program. He can't do that. But that's not how church was. Everybody was so filled. Everybody was so, let me just tell you what God is doing in my life. That there was a desire to be able to minister to others by just sharing the experiences that we've had. But we don't in any church I've ever been in. Part of the reason is the pastor doesn't want to lose control. The other, and it's just kind of weird. The other reason is there's always been strange people who have gotten up and shared some stuff. I know I shared this story with you before. I had a lady one time 
uh, on a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and this was her praise to the Lord. You know, there were some neighbors, these friends of mine, not friends, there's these rough guys that live next to, to my house, and they played this really bad devil rock and roll music really loud at night, and so I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I walked around their house, and I prayed for God to bring judgment on them, and a fire broke out and burnt to the ground. Praise Jesus. Well, we're not going to be asking people in the congregation anymore to share, and we're especially not asking you. You know what I mean? And so, therefore, you, you tone all that in because it just, and then we f- forget that that's part of worship. The reason why most people don't want to share is because we judge what God has done with us to somebody else. You know, I, I was really praying for this miracle, and the miracle was that that uh, we had lost our dog, and it was, the dog was really important to my little girl. And my, for three days, my little girl was just anguishing over that, and I thought the dog was gone forever. And we asked Jesus. I mean, it, it just affirmed her faith so much. We asked Jesus to bring the dog back. And the next morning, the dog was scratching at the door. And I just want to praise Jesus for caring about things like that. I want to share that, but the person before me shared about being healed by cancer. Mine's nothing. I ain't going to share mine. And we have a tendency of doing that, like the best story wins. Or the saddest part is God doesn't really do anything in our life during the week that is worthy of praise. And so therefore, we just decide just to sit and go home. James chapter 5, of course, it talks about the elders of the church gathering together and laying hands on somebody to be healed. I mean, there's a lot more people involved in this than just the pastor. So what can we learn about the early church? First, look at this quick word of worship. In the New Testament, there are six Greek words that are translated worship. Five of those have nothing to do with corporate worship. We call it worship. The New Testament hardly ever did. It has nothing to do with that. Here's here's an example of one of those five words. Um, This word means to prostrate, to fall down. It's more of uh, an outward sign of contrition. When it comes to worship, it doesn't mean corporate worship. It means a style of worship. And we find this, for example, in Matthew chapter two. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child, this is the wise man with Mary and his mother, and fell down and proskuneo him, fell down and worshiped him to prostrate before him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is not a corporate worship service. This Greek word means that they're coming before an individual, before Christ, and they're prostrating themselves to worship him individually. Okay, it's four other words that talk about worship that have nothing to do with corporate worship. But there is one that does. Um, This word, where we get the word liturgy from. It means to minister publicly to worship publicly, to serve publicly. We find the classic example of this in Acts chapter 13, where the church is gathered together and are getting ready to send off uh, Paul and Barnabas. And it says, and they ministered, that's that word where we get liturgy from, the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, now set apart to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Let's look at this in context. This whole story just takes place in three verses. Now, when the church, this is the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and it lists the elders per se. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
Now, as the church is getting together and worshiping, as they ministered to the Lord, that's a worship experience, is worshiping God. They're ministering to him. They're worshiping him publicly and fasting, because that's part of that. The Holy Spirit now in their midst as they're ministering to God said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. How in the world did that message get communicated? Did they all have a vision? Did somebody stand up and give a a prophecy and they all agreed with it? Did they all say, yes, I hear his, I mean, how did that happen? But they were so in tune that the Holy Spirit rose in their midst and made this statement. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. Small example of maybe what church was like in the book of Antioch during the book of Acts. So as you take what we learn in the book of Acts and from early church writings, we can come up with a picture of what church was like in the New Testament. And I want to just lay this out for you quickly. Number one, there was a time for singing. We see that sometimes with instruments, sometimes not with instruments. It really doesn't matter. Sometimes you can sing silently. Let's offer a silent praise to our Lord, like the video I just showed you. There was a time of singing. Okay, we do that. We do singing. Yeah, we got that. There was a time of reading of his word where they would stand up and they would read small sections or large sections of the Old Testament. And later on, when Paul's letters were being distributed, they would read those letters in the various churches. Oh, we do that. We read God's word. I mean, we start out usually by reading a passage in God's word, and, and then we kind of expound on that, which is the other thing the early church did, is they preached a sermon, and they kind of expounded on God's word. We do that too. So the first three things of these, we, we got down pretty much. We sing, we read his word, and we have an, uh, an exposition on the word telling us what it means, how it affects our lives, what we're supposed to do with that. Okay. But then it was a time of ministry to each other. Early church sometimes called this the love feast, the agape feast, where people would encourage each other. They would, hey, here's what the Lord has, has spoken to me about this, or let me pray for you. And, and there was a, a not just coming and sitting and fellowshipping, how's work? God, how are your kids? Fine. What's been going on? Hey, I hope the, the uh, Panthers win this day. And then we go out and do our own lives. But there was actually a time of ministry to each other. And you know why? Because everybody had a gift. And if my gift, for example, is be able to show compassion. I'm ministering to other people who need that gift. We have a tendency of just shaking hands, patting on the back, kind of catching up with each other and and going home like a club because that's what we've all known. It's time for ministry to each other. That was a big part of their church service. It was a time for sharing and the needs of others. Again, I showed you in that video, somebody comes up and says, hey, she needs some milk. I'm bringing her need here and people clamored around. I, I, I can bring some milk. No, that milk will spoil. She needs some powdered milk now, but nobody's got any powdered milk. And, and, but I know somebody who works in the government office, I'll talk to them. We'll try to work it out. We'll sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. Kind of like we do today, right? We tithe or don't tithe and expect somebody else to take care of all of that. And yet the ministry took place among members. It appears, it appears that the early church took the Lord's Supper almost every time they were together because it meant something to them. It was, they understood what it meant to be the bride of Christ. They understood about the, the love feast there. When we take the Lord's Supper, 
I think we do it monthly. We're going to do it next week. We do it monthly. And the reason why is we don't want it to become passe, but we miss the power behind that because I, I don't think the church today understands what it means to identify with the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord. There was a time of prayer. And this wasn't just, uh, Mo, would you pray for us? <clears throat> okay, stand up and pray. It was broken up prayer. It was like when somebody would pray and somebody else would pray, prayer and, and there was a heartfelt need and nobody was concerned about how our prayers sounded to each other. It was concerned about how our prayers were connecting with God. You know, we have a tendency of, hey, would anybody like to close in prayer? Boom. You know, it's nobody does anything. And finally, the guilt so much that yeah, I'll close the prayer. Okay. I mean, that wasn't what they did. And the reason why is they spent so much time praying themselves that it was just natural to pray with other people that you, that you, that you love. Well, I just feel uncomfortable praying. It ain't about you feeling uncomfortable. The only reason why you and I feel uncomfortable is because somebody else is sitting there. We're praying to our Father. I mean, somebody else can be encouraged by our prayers. If your children see you pray, it forever changes their life. It was a time of praise and testimony, sharing about what God has done in their life. Hey, here's what this happened, and here's what this happened. I want to just glorify the Lord in that. And there was a time of humility and confession. Humility was in the form of foot washing. Well, the church quickly dumped that. And the reason why Jesus gave them an example, as I've done to you, you should do to others at the Last Supper. But because it's never mentioned again in Scripture, because they didn't even want to do that, they dumped that out of the way. We don't, we don't do that anymore. I'm not a little thrilled about doing that. Are you? But it was humility and confession. There was actually a time in the early church service, according to letters of the early church fathers, where they would confess their sins to one another, which is exactly what James says. And be accountable. I, I really messed up this week. I, um, I, um, I watched some stuff on television that I know I shouldn't have. And I made a commitment to the Lord I would, and I did. I did, and I feel terrible about it. Will you pray for me and hold me accountable? And we don't ever do that because we don't want anybody else to know what we're struggling with because we got our smiley faces on when we come to church. Not like them. They were a family. Early church fathers said that there was a time of verbal commitment. That when they came together, there was a time to stand up and plead and give your life to Christ. I surrender all that I am to the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you join me? Yes, 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 yes. And it was a, a, a verbal reaffirmation of Jesus Christ being Lord of all. And then it was time for fellowship. And then it was a time for a common meal. These are the things that I have gleaned that the early church devoted themselves to. Some of these things we don't do. Some of these things we have never done. Some of these things I have never been in a church that does those things because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We used to have a time in the beginning of our worship service where we would recite some scriptures. Do you remember? And it started with the children and their parents would teach them some passages at home. And then the children would come up and they would share those passages as they're memorizing God's word. And it was cute when the kids did it. And so we were okay with that. And then some adults would want to share some scriptures. And then it, um, we just quit doing that. My mistake. We should have not done that. I would like to reinstitute that next week. I would like, if you would, and we'll start with the kids if you want. If your children have memorized some scripture during the week, I'd love for them to come up and share it. 
I'd love for them to, to speak God's word that way. If some of you have some scriptures that you would like to share, let's do what we did in the beginning. I mean, it was a really powerful time that kind of got off the rails and it just, it, um, it's, time, it's time to bring that back. And so I'd like to encourage you adults, as you're studying the word, if you memorize the scripture, let's all be affirmed by the scripture that you've memorized so that we can line our life up more with the passage. Now I want to close with this. Worship is defined as the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our heart. That's from Gruden's Systematic Theology. It's a standard definition today of worship. And a classic verse on that is Colossians chapter 3. That the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And so what do I do with this word of Christ dwelling within me? I'm teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is not just the pastors. It's to all of us. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord for the good and glorious things he has done. Because when we worship the Lord, there's a few things that happen. Number one, we delight in God. When is the last time you truly worshiped him alone? In your car, went off to your barn, closed your bedroom door, just got away from everything, left your phone somewhere else and didn't answer emails and you just worshiped him. I mean, you delight in who he is. And scripture teaches us that when we delight in him or when we delight in him in worship, that he delights in us. He delights in us as we're offering a praise and, and adoration to him. We find that when we worship, we draw near to God. And when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And when he draws near to us, he ministers to us. And when he, the scripture says that when we worship him, his enemies flee. And if you are in Christ, his enemies are your enemies. And they flee when we worship him. Ancient Israel used to do that. And when we worship him, unbelievers who are in our midst, maybe some of us, who truly don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, realizes there's something different about them because they're truly worshiping God than just an unbeliever sitting through a service being not affected at all. And so what I want to do in the last 15 minutes that we have, I want to give you a different opportunity to worship him. Um, we have a tendency when we sing our songs together is to stand and sing. I don't know where the standing came from. It's just something that we've always done. Um, it helps us sing louder and it's more like a praise and worship kind of thing. But sometimes worship is meditative. And so I've, Karen, I've asked Karen to choose four songs that you already know. And she and Levi are going to come up here and play those for us. They're more meditative songs. And I want to ask you just to stay seated and just spend some time dwelling and thinking about him. You can sing the songs. Again, we'll have the lyrics up here, but you can sing the songs, you know them. You can sing them with your eyes closed if you want. You can just listen to the music and reflect on what they're saying and the glories of God. You can just pray during this time. But I just want you to, other than what we normally do on Sunday morning, just sit and meditate and think about him. And see, just during these four songs we're going to sing, and see if you relax and you shut out everything else and just focus on him and the lyrics to this music and what it's 
saying about the condition of your soul and my soul, this maybe, maybe God will speak to you. Maybe God will encourage you. Maybe God will change your life in such a way that you want to share it with others. Amen? So let me pray.